0: welcome to the Art Engager podcast with me Claire Bowne. I'm here to share techniques and tools to help you engage with your audience and bring art, objects and ideas to life. So let's dive into this week's show. And welcome back to the Arts Engager podcast. I'm your host, Claire Bowne of Thinking Museum, and this is episode 84. So I have a guest for you today on the show. I'm really happy to be talking to Margaret Middleton about what inclusive language is and why it matters. But before that, as always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by treating me to a cup of tea on buymeacoffee.com forward slash I'll also put a link in the show notes. Now, let me introduce my guest this week. Margaret Middleton is an American independent exhibit designer and museum consultant, currently based in Belfast, Northern Ireland. With a degree in industrial design from the Rhode Island School of Design and over 15 years of experience in the museum field, they work at the intersection of design and social justice. In our chat today, Margaret and I talk about why the language we use and the words we choose matters. We discuss how certain words, phrases, and tenses can have a positive or negative effect on a group. Now, we know museums aim to be welcoming places, but the ways museums communicate can inadvertently exclude and alienate visitors. Likewise, when we're working as museum teachers, guides, and educators, The words we choose when we communicate can hide unconscious biases and assumptions, especially about subjects like family. So 10 years ago, Margaret created a tool called the Family Inclusive Language Chart. And this chart helps us to choose words that avoid labelling and making assumptions about the identities and relationships between museum visitors. In today's episode, we explore ways that you might use this chart in the museum. We talk about ways that we can avoid using language that might alienate or make people feel excluded. We talk about why choosing the right words is just as important as avoiding the wrong ones. Margaret shares some advice for how we can be more intentional about the language we use and how we can train ourselves to not automatically default to words that may not be inclusive. So this chat will make you more aware of the language and words you use when you're with visitors in the museum, and you'll gain useful insight into how thoughtful word choices have the power to create connections and include everyone. So here it is. Enjoy. Hi, Margaret. Welcome to the Art Engager podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm delighted you can be here. Could you tell everyone listening where you are right now? I am joining you from
1: my studio here in Belfast, Northern Ireland.
0: And how did you get to be in Belfast? I'm picking up on an accent. Yes, yeah, so we moved from the United
1: States. I followed my partner here. She works at the Queen's University of Belfast here. And we've been here for a couple of years now.
0: Can you tell us a bit about how you came to be doing what you're doing now?
1: So I got my start in museums in the children's museum field. And I was in-house as an exhibit designer for a while. And then I went independent and now I work for museums of all kinds as an exhibit designer and a museum consultant.
0: And are there specific values and principles that guide your work? It's a question I ask quite frequently on this podcast. I know it gives people pause for thought when they see that question in advance, but it's nice to think about, you know, what are the values, what principles actually guide your work and your practice? My
1: practice is guided by inclusion. That's the sort of the unifying find principle inclusion, and also learning through play, which I pick up from my children's museum background, and that I'm particularly interested in making spaces and thinking about the experiences of people who have been historically marginalized by the museum, including queer people, people of color, disabled people,
0: children. And I think today there are many subjects I could be talking to you about. We had a chat off air. We thought we might focus today on language. I've got a fascination myself with words and how language and phrases and how the language we use can create connections with people, but can also exclude people and alienate people. So, I'd love today to focus thinking about your values and your principles on inclusive language and how we can be more intentional with the language and the words that we use, perhaps even creating more awareness to choice and types of words and how we say things. So, on a very general level, why does language, why does the language we use and the words we use, why does it matter? Well, language
1: guides the visit. It can set the tone for the whole museum visit. It can be anything written, spoken. You know, it starts with maybe the website and all that wayfinding signage that you're getting on the way into the museum, the signage at the front desk, how you're greeted at that front desk, the words that are spoken on the tour, the words that are said over the announcements. um, Language is a really important part. And that's not even, you know, that's not even considering all of the language that's on the labels themselves or in the interpretive panels. So language is a huge part of the museum visit.
0: And I think also as educators, so um, I think majority of people listening to this will work in heritage or museum education. Perhaps also they might work in classrooms with students. But it's about Developing that mindfulness, being mindful of the language we use. I think it's more than about just avoiding certain words. Maybe it's important that we avoid stigmatizing or derogatory words, but it's also important to choose the right words, isn't it? I think that's just as important as avoiding the wrong ones.
1: Yeah, and I think that (laughs) those of us who are working in that sort of inclusive language sphere hear this one a lot that we're like becoming the language police or taking words away somehow. And I think that's a really telling hang up uh, because to me, I come from an, I went to art school. So I come from this like user-centered design background. And when we approach problem solving in the design process, Looking for limitations is actually something that can fuel creativity. You get more creative solutions when you look at constraints and limitations. So in my mind, I'm not taking anything away with inclusive language. I'm opening up possibilities for using new language or using language in a different way. And I think that's really exciting. (laughs) I developed the family inclusive language chart as a museum worker who was on the like that bottom rung. like I wasn't in management. I didn't feel like I had a lot of control over practice. but there was one thing that I could do in my own work that it didn't require any permission from anybody. I didn't have to get a grant or budget approval to change my own language. And for me, in that place where I didn't feel like I had a lot of
0: power, that felt really empowering. And you mentioned the family inclusive language chart there. I'd love to focus on that and perhaps you could talk us through what the chart is and how someone might use it. So the family inclusive
1: language chart is a tool that I developed almost 10 years ago now. (laughs) And it's a list of terms to avoid and those terms include, and I guess I will back up and say this guidance is all about people we don't know yet. So this is for interacting with somebody new who we don't have a history with. So we don't necessarily know who they are and what their relationships to one another are. And so some of those words that we're avoiding are like identity words or relationship words like mom or dad, son, daughter, extended family, family resemblance and members of a household. So those are these terms to avoid. And then for each of them, there's an explanation of why and some ideas for
0: other things to say instead. So some of the words, those words that you listed in the first column, they might be problematic or alienated. Can you suggest ways that we can avoid using language that might alienate people in the museum? So that first one, parents, mom, dad, mom and dad, this
1: particular one is inspired by typical children's museum practice. I was taught when I came into the museum that the best way to refer to caregivers with children in the museum were as grown-ups or caregivers or adults, whatever word felt right to me. But the idea here is that it's not accurate to all children, right? Like, so, and and the I think the, the place where this becomes maybe the most crucial, and this is part of the training that you'll often get in a children's museum, if you're floor staff or, or um, play guide, you're gonna hear like, what's our protocol for reuniting a child and adult in the museum? And when you're approaching an unaccompanied child in the museum who may be in distress, it's not helpful to ask where their mom is, because that may not be the person who they came to the museum with that day. They may not have a mom, or she may not be there today. So the most accurate, the best way to get at the question that we're really asking, which is like, Who are you here with? Where's your grown-up? That's the question that we would ask. And we're able to ask the question that we really want to know. We get better information quicker. And we're able to reunite that adult and child faster and, and with less distress
0: Yeah, it's a great example. And a great example of how we may make assumptions as well. I want to share an example of a time when I perhaps have used language that perhaps was not as inclusive as it could be. So I was recording a podcast and we were talking about family tours. And throughout the interview that we had, we had a great chat, but we were talking about whether the adults would get involved. And I During the recording, use the word parents instead of adults. I look back at my notes afterwards and in my notes, I'd said, how do you get the adults involved? But at the spur of the moment, when I was talking and obviously improvising, I used parents. So I think this may be something that perhaps other people might also struggle with. How can we uh, train ourselves not to do this automatic default? to words that may not be so inclusive when we're talking.
1: I think that's a, a good way to think about it as a default. And I think what I'll usually recommend is, one, don't try to use a lot of different language. And what I mean by that is don't have work language and home language, just like pick a way that you're going to speak in your whole life and again we're talking about people we don't know yet um so as soon as somebody talks about their mom or their son or their grandfather those are the where i'm going to mirror their language but i approach this in my whole life so then i'm not switching back and forth between this is what i say at work and this is what i say on the playground with my kids so that consistency i think is really important i think get an accountability buddy is also really helpful like hey let's do this together every time you notice that i've made an assumption with my language help me out and i'll do the same with you and if there are any words that you struggle with saying i'm thinking of like like maybe a lot of words in the lgbtq acronym for example or even just the acronym um, there can be hang-ups around, you know, if these are not words that you're used to saying, I recommend that people say them in the mirror to themselves. And it's just a, a way to get comfortable that your mouth wrap around those words that you're not necessarily used to saying, and it'll get easier.
0: Yeah, some great suggestions there. I think if we're talking about educators, quite often we may use some of those techniques to think about improving other areas of our practice as well. So we may think about, um, I always advocate for people recording themselves, even if it's just an, an audio recording of when they're working. Because we assume we are working in a certain way, but are we really? Are we really asking all the questions we think we're asking? Are we really phrasing things the way we want to phrase them? So recording can be a great way of actually holding up a mirror to your practice and thinking about, am I doing things the way I think that I'm doing them? So thanks for those suggestions. Um, So could you give another example, perhaps, from the chart and explain why this might be problematic in a museum visit?
1: Well, the one that usually gets some laughs, but also that sense of recognition is the family resemblance piece. And so that one is about avoiding making assumptions about how people are related based on how they look. And so it kind of goes both ways. You may notice a family resemblance between people who you think are related where there isn't actually any resemblance. This happened to me as a nanny, actually. People would say that the kids in my care looked like me, which they didn't. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think they we're conditioned to look for these similar features in people. And there are so many families where caregivers and children do not look alike, and the idea that that they are not related can be really, really frustrating for those families, that they're not seen as a family, because they do not share that family resemblance that we're sort of conditioned to look for. So my advice in that case is just keep all of those observations to yourself. One of the most important pieces of this language, like I know... Sometimes when I'm talking about this, it sounds so nitty gritty. It sounds so fussy and small. But I know for myself, and there's actually some really interesting research about this, that when we change our language or we're really conscious of our language, it can change our perception. It changes what we can see. So like, and I'll use an example from my life, you know, my partner and I have been mistaken for all manner of relationships when to us, it is very clear that we are in a romantic relationship, that we are a couple. And so have like strangers will assume that we are sisters or, I mean, we've had like mother, son, it's like, it runs the gamut. (laughs) And like a lot of queer couples can relate to that. And in a lot of cases, it's funny, Um, but it gets old quick and it becomes a microaggression. So on a good day, we can laugh about it, but over time it all adds up and you get this sense that you're invisible that people don't see you and that you're somehow less valid. I think that because I approach the world thinking I have this queer experience and I think of families as, you know, this really expansive thing. I think I have an ability to see families where other people may not see them, you know? I'm able to see other queer couples in the world um, where maybe they pass right by straight people and nobody notices. But I think that awareness is really what this, the, what, where the, the language comes in.
0: Yeah, I, I really like that idea of thinking about language and being very precise with our words and careful with our words as a starting point and a starting point to really make a difference. And when you think about language and words, it can have such a positive effect and it can really put in motion steps towards the more equitable society. So we're we're talking about small steps that could have a massive difference sure you must hear all the time people saying i wasn't even aware i didn't even know that this language was exclusionary or or could be seen as offensive and that reminds me a little bit of a conversation we had off air about the terms guys when people use guys when they greet people and it some of the comments on a post i read about this were people saying, we weren't even aware, I don't see it as a gender term. So what alternatives can we think of to terms such as ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, or guys when we're greeting people? How can we have terms in our back pocket that we can pull out and use instead? I think the most
1: important part of this to remember is that just because I'm okay being addressed in a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that my guests to the museum are going to feel the same way. So regardless of whether I think guys is inclusive or not, we know that a lot of people don't feel included by that term. So we're just not gonna use it. It's so easy. There's a million other ways to talk, right? So one easy way is, hi all hello everyone. Welcome. Will everyone follow me? Right? Like there's, there's a lot These are, these are really simple. Nobody would even notice you were saying this. This wouldn't, this would not come across as like particularly inclusive language. We talked about some fun ways to get people in the mood for their museum visit. I think it can be fun to say, you know, like, hey, art lovers or you know, art history explorers or or you know, wherever you are, if you're like at the the science museum, come along, scientists, let's learn some science together, right? Like we can have fun with it. And the the reason why we're avoiding, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is that it's not inclusive of non-binary people. I personally, as a non-binary person myself. I'm not included and in ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that's not none of those are for me. So there's something nice about making room for everybody and all genders in our language.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I was thinking then about uh language being so fluid and changing all the time and people struggling to know which terms are in use right now. I had this discussion in a museum I was in uh, last week and we were talking about certain artwork that deals with certain themes and we wanted to know the most up-to-date terms. And luckily we had a network, well I had a network I could rely on and ask for what is the most up-to-date terms that we can use. Um, But language does change and it's important that we particularly as educators or as museum professionals we keep ourselves up to date and current with the words that we're using and we're not um, perhaps sticking to the tried and tested phrases that we've used for a long time I mean I I think that it's one thing
1: to do is follow a lot of different people on social media and read articles subscribe to the latest journals I think you know Journal of Museum Education and Viewfinder, are some of my favorites. And it's helpful to know where to look. You don't have to have all of the answers. We use this in an in a museum tour as well, right? Like we remind other educators and ourselves, like, we don't have to have all of the answers. It's okay to say, I don't know, but I know where to find out. And that's the most important piece. So You know, I think it's really helpful to surround yourself with educators with a lot of different backgrounds and maintain those relationships. So you're not struggling that moment where you're like, gosh, like, I'm stuck. I don't know. You know, how are we talking about slavery, you know, these days? Like, why am I not up to date on this, you know? And you have some people or articles or journals that you can go to. to to find those answers that's good educator skills right there
0: absolutely yeah keeping keeping yourself abreast of things keeping informed keeping up to date and showing that curiosity and interest to want to keep developing your language and changing how you might say things and do things in the museum for sure um we're Speeding up to our last question, but I'd love for you to share how listeners can find out more about you, any resources or articles you'd like to share. Obviously, the Family Inclusive Language Guide, but yeah, how can people find out more about you?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at magmid, M-A-G-M-I-D-T, and my website, margaretmiddleton.com. I have a whole page of resources there, things you can download I have articles that I've written and blog posts and things so there are a lot of different ways I've tried to create a lot of different different resources that are all free and you know if you're interested in learning more about children in the museum there's a book that I contributed a chapter to that is really great welcoming young children into the museum and The reason why I'm so excited about that book in particular is that we focus on early childhood, which is a segment of the population who I personally really love, these are my people, and they are often not catered to in the museum outside of a few select programs. So this is a very comprehensive look at that. And yeah, it was a real honor to be included in that.
0: Thank you for sharing. We'll put links to everything in the show notes. Your resources page on your website is fantastic. I spent quite a long time going down the rabbit hole with all the articles and resources there, and we'll put a link to the book as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to me today. Thanks for being on the Art Engager podcast. Thanks so much, Claire. This was fun. So a huge thank you to Margaret for being on the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed our chat. Go to the show notes to find out more about Margaret's work and to download the Family Inclusive Language Charts. And before you go, if you want to get more slow looking into your life and make it a regular practice, join us in the Slow Looking Club. We have regular themes and regular get-togethers. I've put a link in the show notes so that you can come and join us. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye. thank you for listening to the art engager podcast with me claire bound you can find more art engagement resources by visiting my website thinkingmuseum.com and you can also find me on instagram at thinking museum where i regularly share tips and tools on how to bring art to life and engage your audience If you've enjoyed this episode, please share with others and subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.